Welcome back, folks, to the Dispatch Podcast. It is Joseph, and this week, uh, joining me for this episode is historian and CEO of the Battle of Franklin Trust, Eric Jacobson, and we are going to be discussing the Lincoln-Douglas debates of 1858 for the Illinois Senate race of that year, and sort of their legacy and why they are so important to understanding the greater context of how the American Civil War is viewed, how do they influence uh, some of the interpretation that we've uh, included here at all three historic sites, and how are they remembered as part of the legacy in American politics. So, Eric, welcome uh, back to the dispatch. Hello, hello. And we should just dive right in. Uh, you know, we've only got 30 minutes, so we will do a crash course. So how do the Lincoln-Douglas debates fit into that sort of decade in which America loses its head? There's a reason that the Lincoln-Douglas debates are remembered all these years later. Unlike anything else, I don't know that anybody remembers the uh, Kennedy-Nixon debates. Well, maybe maybe one of those, but... You know, there's there's no there's no real political discussion or rhetoric quite like what Abraham Lincoln and Stephen Douglas engage in that fall of 1858, and it was because the the country was careening off the rails, and these two men really embodied the the greatest of divisions. You had the emerging Republican Party. And it was being viewed as a as a as a as a real threat. It was it was a sort of reorganization of, of northern politics, but the Republicans had become a decided threat. You know, this is only two years after the Republicans had run their first candidate for president, a, a, a full blown abolitionist, and here comes Lincoln, who's who's more of a moderate. And Douglas, of course, is has been has been carrying the water for Democrats for a long time, but you're beginning to see the split in the in the Democrat Party between these Northern Democrats, which which Douglas represented, and, and Southern Democrats, who'd eventually really begin to define the secession push a couple of years later. So you know, I don't think it's one thing. I mean, obviously, the topics that Lincoln and Douglas engage in are the things that made them such powerful events at the time. You know, it's not like the the debates became popular afterwards. These were debates attended by thousands and thousands of people. But it's really what's what's at stake. The Lincoln-Douglas debates are the seminal moments in American history because it's right before the crisis just envelops the entire country. And the topics that they're discussing range in everything from slavery to how we should view the Declaration of Independence. These two are leading almost divergent paths for the nation. One will maintain uh, the idea of the founding. The other will attempt to redefine it, I think is probably the best way to explain it. And they get started with that the first debate in Ottawa, and that is in August of 58. And by the end of the Ottawa debate, it is almost apparent that Lincoln, lawyer that he is, needs that moment or two to sort of collect his thoughts rather than have to respond to a string of allegations with deny, 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 deny. This debate is not, and we won't do a play-by-play of how each debate goes, but by the time that this debate ends, it is clear that the orator of that debate is Lincoln. And these two kind of figureheads of these parties are going back and forth nonstop for months. And it it almost seems as though we, we should talk about this as if Lincoln won the debates, but he doesn't. He does not win the Senate election. So how do they, despite his 
defeat, how do they have any effect on what we think of Lincoln from 58 to 60? How does that have any influence if, at the end of it, Douglas wins the election for the 58th Senate race anyways? Mm, I think, actually, in the long run, Lincoln did win the debate. <clears throat> he just lost the election. And there's a difference, because there are two things going on. This is a conversation between the two of them, which is about a more localized election. Mm -hmm. You know, it's U.S. Senate, but it's U.S. Senate for a state, Illinois, in the north. So they're having a conversation with one another in front of mostly white northerners. Mm -hmm. And it is about the declaration. It is about race, which is, you know, the white race being superior to the black race, Mm -hmm. who are almost exclusively enslaved. But see, Lincoln, I think, wins the debate in the long run because this is a national conversation. Mm -hmm. It just happens to be going on in Illinois. And, and Douglas is, you know, Douglas is a, is a, he's a good speaker, but he's also a consummate politician, and he's mm -hmm. always looking for this opportunity to, to play a zero-sum game. And he's doing it with race, and he does it, I mean, race is the thing that Douglas keeps going back to over mm -hmm. and over and over and over again. And, of course, he's pandering to many white people in the audience who have all sorts of, you know, racial prejudices. If, you know, today we'd call them outright racists. Well, mm -hmm. Lincoln's trying to navigate a minefield, and it, and it takes Lincoln a while, I, I think, really, to— Lincoln had been a good, he'd given a number of speeches before this, and he had been quite articulate in his mm -hmm. position. But he doesn't do well the first few times Douglas smacks him around. Mm -hmm. And Lincoln has to figure out how does he make an argument, a case, through a debate where he's not really even talking to the audience. Mm -hmm. I think Abraham Lincoln understood far better than Stephen Douglas. Lincoln was speaking to a national audience. Mm -hmm. Because this is this is a debate that, while the people reading it in, say, New Orleans don't care about roads that could be built or railroads that could go on in Illinois, they're paying attention to the larger conversation that's being had about race and about slavery uh, that is going on between, essentially, the representative faces of the parties, uh, the Republican and the Democrats. And Stephen Douglas, despite being a Northern Democrat, uh, would have favored the idea, and he actually authors the idea of popular sovereignty, and in one of the debates, and it's the early portion of the debates in the first phase, he says he does not care whether slavery be voted up or be voted down in the territories. And that takes it to a discussion of this idea of going back to the 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act. And that is where we can see the nation having to grapple with the expansion of the institution of slavery further west. Which is really an interesting point. Because he does care about whether slavery gets voted up or down because he's a Democrat. Mm -hmm. he's, he's totally in bed with slavery. Mm -hmm. So he's not taking any stance against it. He's actually opening up the doors for it to expand. Mm -hmm. he's, he's being a, the worst kind of politician. He's the architect of the 1854 Kansas-Nebraska Act, which really is a thing that, to be quite plain, really pisses Lincoln off because he sees this as an overturn of 20-plus years of a compromise about where slavery could go. Mm -hmm. I think Douglas is totally in bed with the pro-slavery movement. Mm -hmm. He just artfully says, well, you know, I, I'm okay with whether the two, of course he's okay with it, but mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's opened up the doors for slavery to go into places where it had been 
restricted for quite some time. And if you're a Republican, you hear that one way. And if you're a Southern Democrat, you hear it a completely different way. Sure. Or, or a Democrat at all at that point. Uh, but the the real crux that they will square, and they square off multiple times. You know, and we think of presidential debates now or Senate races and debates now, these local debates, they maybe one or two, and then it's election day, uh, three or four for a larger election. But these guys are through, and as historian Alan Gelzo puts it, through multiple phases of their both of their campaigns, they collide multiple times. Mm-hmm. And they're also giving speeches uh, individually between mm-hmm. the debates. On their own campaign stumping. And it's and then that is these phases that, that Gelzo alludes to. And it it's almost seems like it ramps up and ramps up and ramps up every single time. And the issues become almost more divisive and you start to see more signs that show up at these Lincoln Douglas debates is S.A. Douglas and uh, and popular sovereignty or Lincoln and the Republic and all of these things. It just continues to grow to the what we almost can kind of see these debates now in our own elections and in our recent memory. So Lincoln seems to really light on fire in September. Yeah. There's a speech he gives in Edwardsville in Illinois on September 11th, 1858, where he 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 throws a match right in the right in the gasoline, mm-hmm. and it's the first time that I've ever been um, aware of how Lincoln attacks the issue of not just slavery but of race and mm-hmm. what's really at stake. And he just and he's I've I've said many times it's the it's one of the few moments when you see Lincoln speaking like an evangelical Christian. Mm-hmm. which he was not, but he addresses the issue of God. He addresses the issue of, of damnation and of hell, and that this is what, this is what um, slaves, this is what uh, people were being treated like. That they, it's like they'd been cast into hell, and he's, and he's questioning if you continue this. I think that the line is, you know, are you, don't be surprised when the demon you have aroused turns and rends you. You know, it's it's a powerful moment mm-hmm. where Lincoln's already changing, mm-hmm. which he was always very good at. He was he was he's malleable. Mm-hmm. Some people would see that as just being political. I think it's actually the opposite. I think he sees the growing threat. Douglas can't change. Douglas just keeps saying the same thing over and over and mm-hmm. over and over again. And Lincoln starts to change the well, argument. He had, he had staked his whole political career right. on on Kansas, Nebraska and on its success. Right. And I think that's even one of the things that that Lincoln had brought up is that he had chained his entire life to it. You know what's really missing from the debates is we can't hear their tone of voice. Mm-hmm. That to pick up the subtle, the subtle sarcasm. I think Lincoln. sometimes Lincoln wasn't subtly sarcastic. He was. I mean, he <laughs> com- right. he comes right out and just and uh, and that that's when he's playing to the audience because mm-hmm. he's pointing out the inconsistencies. He's pointing out some of the frankly nonsensical nature of what Douglas is arguing. Like when he backs Douglas into a corner and gets him to admit that the declaration in Douglas's opinion only applied to white Europeans. Mm-hmm. Well, Lincoln then just uses that like a weapon against Douglas. Douglas is trying to get him. Douglas is playing that. I said earlier, zero sum game. He's, he's playing all the dirty racial components, like, you know, mm-hmm. race mixing. Mm-hmm. He calls it, I think amalgamation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he's trying to, he's trying to pin Lincoln down and Lincoln finally says, well, I don't need to own a Negro and I don't need to marry one. I can just leave him alone. Mm-hmm. But Douglas does this 
repeatedly through the debates. He even mm-hmm. tries to get Lincoln on the issue of equality, which Lincoln admits he's he's not at all of the belief that a black man or a black person is equal to white people. But he also then goes right on to say that slavery is wrong. Mm-hmm. And that and that earlier part, the former part where he, he addresses the issue of inequality or that black people are not equal to whites, that that is something that, you know, the modern there's a modern group of people who they use that against Lincoln all the time, but what they conveniently leave out is everything else he said. Yeah, and that it was less a debate about common law and equality as it was to natural law and right. equality. And they also leave out the fact that Lincoln was saying the Declaration of Independence meant exactly what it said. All mm-hmm. men are created equal, not all white Europeans are created equal. Mm-hmm. The, and, and that period of time was... In 1858, see, Lincoln had been developing this idea or had settled on this idea about the Declaration years before Mm -hmm. because he was writing his friend Joshua Speed as early as 1855 about, you know, if we keep going down this course, it'll just be, you know, little groups and pretty soon it'll be, you know, foreigners won't be included and Catholics. Mm -hmm. And he actually makes a comment about if that's the case, I'd just rather move to Russia. Yeah, where you can take the cold despotism pure without the base Base alloy alloy of hypocrisy, right? So I think that his there's a description in, in the book that we will pitch towards the end as Lincoln and Douglas, the debates that define American politics. Uh, but there's a description that Gelzo uses where it says that it is uh, more Goliath, as David and Goliath, of course, being the, the comparison between Douglas, this kind of, and it, it's also important to think of these guys' physical attributes as well, because that's how we remember the, so the little the, guy is Goliath in this analogy, exactly. is that right? Right, uh, and it's the exact opposite uh, in mind. But we also think of 1960 and the Kennedy and Nixon debates is the first time that you're able to see them physical appearances wear on you as well. In 1858, it's this small, squatty, you know, kind of heavy set, a very abrasive politician like in penguin. Douglas, like the Penguin from Batman. Exactly like the Penguin from Batman. Right, um, and then. Lincoln, who is the tall, kind of lanky, uh, very simple-spoken person, and yet both of them has this ability to take the point, just seize onto one thing that the other says, and they can run for an hour and a half with it. Uh, And it's almost, I think it's what's most remarkable about this series of debates is that after the opening responses, it is almost all impromptu. You know what's also forward. not covered in the debates? What's interesting, I was just thinking about, the, I think this is where the hatred of Lincoln and the fear of Lincoln really does begin. Mm-hmm. That's why I said I think he wins the debates. He says everything that absolutely terrifies a segment of the population. Not just people in the South, but people in the North. Because mm-hmm. there were plenty of Democrats in the North. And it begins right there. And it's why I think there are people who really despise Lincoln to this day. He was saying all the things some people just didn't want to hear. And he stuck to it. When whereas Douglas could kind of back his way out of it or would willingly back his way out of it or position himself to be able to back his way out of it. And you know what he never says? He never says tariffs. Or taxes. He never says taxes. Yeah. He doesn't. It's about race. It's about slavery. It's about the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and he keeps pounding away and once he gets his footing it's like a it's like a heavyweight boxing match you know he gets knocked around the first couple rounds but once he gets his he gets his feet underneath him i think douglas at some point probably had to realize he was 
in a fight for his life. And actually, Lincoln, even though he loses that Senate election, you know, he actually got more votes. But the way the mm-hmm. congressional districts were organized, um, ironically, it would be like the 1860 election where the guy who got the fewer the fewest votes actually won the election, which is what which is what happens with Douglas. And so I think that the debates are important, but I, what's an interesting uh, concept or an aspect of the story is that the debates are over. Douglas wins the election, and then in 1860, when these two men square off again for the presidency in 1860 against Breckinridge and John Bell, after Lincoln is elected, there becomes no greater fan of Abraham Lincoln than Stephen Douglas, especially right in the midst of the secession crisis. Or he's an equal opponent of secession. Maybe he doesn't ever ally with him. Right. So much as it becomes this, we've got to turn the cart back around. We have to get back on, we have to get back on the rails. Douglas found out that the party that he represented wasn't interested in his position. They were interested in secession. It's why they abandoned him. It's why they eventually had Breckenridge running as the Southern Democrat, because Douglas somehow wasn't, he wasn't in enough with the crowd, even though he'd, he'd been the guy for the better part of a decade. He had, he had sold out just about every single thing that he could have sold out, which is always the comparison made to the secession movement by itself is uh, one of those common sort of blurbs that gets thrown at us is, well, if the North or the Union would have compromised, well, there was nothing left to compromise. Stephen Douglas couldn't have compromised any more on his position than he already had. And so Breckinridge comes to the fore and Breckinridge becomes the Southern Democrats guy. And then secession follows shortly after Lincoln's election. And there's that that period as we are looking at Lincoln and his party throughout that crisis is that there is no other place. There's nothing left to have compromised. Everything has gone from 50 to 60 at that point. Yeah, Lincoln was, even though he loses, the Republican Party had staked its position on a couple of very, very simple things. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when Lincoln wins and he's being sworn in, I mean, he offers, I mean, people can deny this. He offers the final compromise, Mm -hmm. which is simply stay in the union. And it'll be essentially the status quo. We're just, um, Republicans are going to fight against expansion, but you can have slavery where it exists. Mm -hmm. Stephen Douglas found out at that very moment, the thing that he had been trying to protect, the thing that he had the thing that he had lobbied for, that he'd politicked for, that he'd spoken for, that he had invested thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of his life, it wasn't good enough. And they were they were going to tear the country apart. And, you know, I can't say enough. Lincoln, Lincoln had emerged as the greatest threat that the Southern political establishment ever saw. Because you could marginalize the abolitionists, and here comes the guy... You know, just saying that the union must be preserved and we're going to try and contain slavery. We're not going to end mm-hmm. it right away, mm-hmm. you know. A um, very moderate position. A very moderate position for 1858, 59, or 60. But mm-hmm. when, when the radicals won't accept moderation, then you have a problem. Mm-hmm. Because, well, that's what makes them radicals. You know, and in the end, it was a subset of one party. It wasn't even the entire Democrat Party. It was just a subset of the party I just was talking to someone earlier today that 
there's a population of 30 million people. I mean, Lincoln knows what the demographics are. You know, there's mm-hmm. 30 million people in the country and, you know, 20 plus million of them live in the north. Well, half of the people who lived in the south were slaves. And so how many people were really driving this entire movement towards secession? A minority. Mm-hmm. And I don't think Stephen Douglas, as a northern Democrat, understood the incredible radicalism that had infected part of the white South. But do you know the other thing that Lincoln is doing in the 1858 debates? He's challenging Northerners because he sees the racial apathy of the North. Mm -hmm. And he is concerned that what is happening in the South is going to sweep into the North. And then the entire country is just doomed. Because if slavery becomes the focus of everything, then this representative government will likely just fall apart because then the declaration means nothing. And thus Mm -hmm. the constitution can be just bastardized and bent sideways and turned into whatever it wants to. And the States can do whatever they want to. So as he said in 1861, it's anarchy. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. just anarchy when the minority gets control and decides they're going to do whatever they want with whatever they want, whenever they want. Right. And that's, he revisits that point in the debate saying that, you know, I don't believe that this union would ever dissolve. It would all. It would either become all one thing or all the other. Yep. I, I think that in order for us to understand the beginning of the war, to understand secession, I think we have to look back to the Lincoln-Douglas debate. So I think uh, this is a good way to end this episode. But what we'll also be doing is over the course of the summer, we're going to be recording with various members of the staff here, inter- historical interpreters, curatorial staff, you name it, everyone will at some point uh, have come through here and read a portion of the Lincoln-Douglas debates, uh, and that will be available uh, to actually listen to these debates and understand them a little bit more. Eric, thank you uh, for joining us on The Dispatch. As usual, we would like to promote one of the books that we sell here in the Battle of Franklin Trust bookstores. Uh, you can check out Alan Gelzo's Lincoln and Douglas, The Debates That Defined America, Uh, It is an in-depth study of the language of the debates as well as the politics of both men. It's a sort of dual biography for the first couple of chapters and then after really takes off into a study of the debates and the um, sort of the controversies and the speeches delivered by both and the reactions to Lincoln's uh, oration and to Douglas's oration, uh, both nationally uh, and among the people just sitting right there those thousands of people crowded there to listen to them. And as Gelzo points out, this is the first debate that the entire nation is really paying attention to, and it really sets the stage for political debates going forward. So an incredible book to pick up. Uh, check it out at boft.org shop, and it'll bring you right. Thanks for listening at home or in the car, wherever you are finding the dispatch. Be sure to leave us a review, like, and subscribe to the podcast. And until then, we'll see you on the battlefields.